0: We try to, to use this forum to learn together some of the principles that underlie Jewish living and uh, Torah in general, particularly now that we're going through the fundamentals of <coughs> the formation of the Jewish people, leaving Egypt, the Ramban says that every fundamental aspect of our Belief, knowledge is derived from this process. This is the time to study to study the basics. There's one subject that is very difficult for us to understand, perhaps even more in this age and generation than many others, and it's uniquely positioned and fundamental in Judaism, and that's the subject of prayer, tefillah, davening, praying. So let's try and spend some time this evening and analyze this very difficult, perhaps most difficult area, <coughs> see where it takes us. Inherent in this subject is a fascinating aspect which is a depth of understanding of the mind and its root, consciousness in general, and its process of its, its point of origin and its evolution. <coughs> so we have a lot to lot to think about, a lot to talk about. Let's try to focus our attention on this area and see what we can what we can derive. <coughs> First of all, it should be obvious before we even even begin to look at the subject that no matter how uncomfortable one may feel with this exercise of saying words to one whom you don't see where the results are not necessarily immediately apparent, in a society, in a culture that really looks down or looks very skeptically at anything transcendent at all, those are, those are difficulties. But despite that, and like it or not, you have to acknowledge that this mitzvah, this commandment, mitzvah, and this practice of of prayer is central to all that <coughs> that Judaism is. First of all, according to all opinions, it's a commandment, exactly what the nature of the of the mitzvah is and what form it takes and how it applies to men and how it applies to women. Technical information on that subject I'm not going to go into now. But it's certainly an obligation. And furthermore, you see that in Jewish practice we do a lot of it. We do a lot of it. We have a formal prayer service, if you want to use that word, at least three times a day. At least three times a day. There are many other aspects of Twila that come into daily life. Apart from that, but three times a day, and and some days more than that, we have a formal involvement in this area. Not only that, but it takes a long time. It takes a long time. Even a a minimum amount of time to fulfill the standard requirements of, of prayer as we know them today. It's a lot of time. The Gemara says that in the early generations of Jewish history, the the great people of those generations, (coughs) it used to take them an hour to prepare themselves mentally and spiritually to get into the world of prayer. It used to take them an hour in each effort of prayer itself, and it used to take them an hour to come down. And they did that three times a day. That means you're talking about nine hours a day in the life of an individual who was devoting himself almost entirely or every available moment of, of, of wakeful consciousness to Torah learning. <coughs> nine hours a day. I mean, hard for us to understand those proportions. What? Why is it so central? What is this? What is this mitzvah exactly? And unfortunately, most of us, even those of us who consider ourselves observant or involved in Torah and mitzvahs, it's usually a mitzvah. It's usually done in a very cursory fashion. <coughs> very poor concentration, very poor understanding of what this area means. So it's worth an extreme and concerted effort to try to plumb the depth of what this area is. It's one of those classic areas in Torah thinking that a correct understanding is radically different from a superficial understanding and can change your life forever. (coughs) In more ways than one. (coughs) Let's begin by asking a few questions. Please stay with me carefully because the whole concept that we need to build here and evolve depends on correctly understanding the, the difficulties. First of all, when you begin to study the subject of tefillah, of davening, you see that it's all paradox. Let's, let's try and feel that out. Let's ask a few questions. First of all, <coughs> one of the most basic questions is, how can it make any difference... If I ask him for what I need, if by definition he knows beforehand what I need anyway. Again, right, let's think through this. The mitzvah of prayer is, is phrased and expressed in Jewish terms as requests. Right, that everybody should know. You know that the highest point of the, of the davening, let's say in the morning when we go through all the stages, when we go through the morning davening, you know we go through four levels. <coughs> Are you aware of that? The, the morning prayer service right, has four distinct levels. <clears throat> the first consists of a number of things central to which is the concept of brachos. Brachos means blessings. You make there a series of blessings on all the vessels that you use, the vessels that surround you, from your shoes to your aspects of clothing to the fact that you see the, the tools that you'll be using throughout the day. In other words, there's a, there's a relationship of fresh awareness of the tools and vehicles that you'll be using that first of the level first level of prayer is of the least sanctity in a sense you can interrupt there for example there's no laws of prohibiting any interruptions that are necessary the second level which corresponds to the mystical according to the mystical sources there are four worlds <coughs> there are three worlds that are <coughs> part of the created system and there's a fourth world <coughs> or more correctly the first world which has a certain name, which is completely transcendent. It's the world of oneness. The world of Hashem Himself, as it were. It's not our subject directly tonight. But the first level corresponds to the first of the three. The second level, which we call de zimrah which is where you go into that phase of the prayer service, which is song. de zimrah means there's a rhapsodic element. It consists of mainly Tehillim. That has got a much more stringent requirements of paying attention, let's say, or interruption, you cannot interrupt there except for certain things. The third level, from Baruch on, which includes the Shema, right? Shema israel that talks about Hashem's oneness, that's not even the highest level. There, again, the much more stringent laws of, of not interrupting, tremendously high level of concentration. When you say Shema, when you say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokein, Hashem Echad, the, the concentration should be so intense that at that moment you should cease to exist. When you say Echad, people think, people think that saying that Hashem is one means that there is only one God, as opposed to two or three or four, however many. But that's not really what you mean. Saying that Hashem is one is a very small component of what you really mean. We credit an intelligent ten-year-old with being able to realize that if He's absolute, there can only be one of him. When you say the word Echad, you don't only mean that there is one and not two or three. The word Echad means that He's so intensely one that there is nothing else. That's what one means. It doesn't mean one as opposed to two. It means one as opposed to anything else at all. The oneness should be so intense in your concentration when you say the word Echad that you should cease to exist because there's only Him. In fact, it's one of the reasons that the commentary said that you shouldn't prolong the word Echad for too long because you may, you may get lost up there and forget to come down again into who you are. But for that moment, there should be a, there should be a consciousness of only His existence. That's what Echad means. That there's nothing. That there's, there's no up, there's no down, there's no left, there's no right, there's no me, there's no you, there's only Him. What we say, "Einod milvadet." There's nothing besides him. That's what Echad means. That's why Echad is made up of a one and an eight and a four. That's thirteen. Right? Thirteen is always the this, this, thirteen in Judaism is always the concept of thirteen disparate and separate things that make up a oneness. That's why the mystics say that any structure in three dimensions always has thirteen constraining characteristics. Right? You take the perfect structure of three dimensions, which is a cube. So you have four lines that bound it there, and there are four lines that bound it here, there are four interconnecting lines, that's twelve, and the thirteenth is that Aleph, that, that first letter of the word, which is the mystical center that bonds them all into one cube. They're not just twelve isolated lines, they're interconnected in a oneness, that's thirteen. That's why, that's why the word Echad adds up to thirteen. The word for love in Hebrew, Ava, also adds up to, to thirteen, because love is essentially the bonding of elements into a oneness. So that's very high, but it's not the highest. The fourth level, which we call the, um, the Amidah, the Shmona Esrei, right? the fourth level is so high <coughs> that you enter the fourth world, you, you transcend all the three created worlds and you go into the world of the source. At that point there's no interruption at all. You are in such a transcendent bond with the source that there are no words to describe it. Now, that's not the problem. The problem is, how do we express this now, this is almost, almost no words to express the difficulty of this. When you get up into that fourth level, that you're now going through that incredible experience of facing, directly facing Hashem. In fact, in fact, that itself is paradoxical. The sources say that you, the expression that's used there in the sources is, Gilu birada. That means you should rejoice in trembling at that moment. But it means the way you even do that mitzvah is a paradox. You should rejoice in trembling. You know what that means? You should be panic-stricken and joyous at the same time. How can you imagine such a paradox? One of the illustrations that's given is that if you knock on the door, you have an opportunity to get to a certain door. When that door opens, you'll be facing someone who has the power to destroy you instantly or grant exactly what you wish. And you don't know how it's going to go. The door will open, you'll face him. And in one instant, you'll either be totally destroyed or you'll have what you want. What's the emotion that that you experience as you knock on that door? There's a panic-stricken, trembling, in joyous ecstasy. Why? Because, for all the fear of facing this powerful individual, there's the ecstasy of the fact that you now have your opportunity to ask. Remarkable thing. That means the emotions are paradoxical then. The reason for the paradox, uh, difficult to go into in detail, is because when you, when, you, when you get to the source, you're always entering the paradox, the ultimate paradox, which, are, which is Hashem's Oneness, and yet your differentiated existence. That's the source of all paradox, how he could be one and yet I could exist. That's why this whole subject is, is fraught with, with paradox. But without going too much into the mystical depth, let's just understand what we're saying. We're now holding in this place of source, dealing with face to face with the source himself. And what do you do at that moment? You ask for what you need. There are no words to express the difficulty of that. First of all, let, let's think it through. First of all, what sense does it make to ask from one who knows what you need anyway? But this is not a joke. There's no there's not jokes or empty ritual in Judaism. In Torah, everything has intrinsic meaning. What's the meaning of asking one who knows exactly what you need and what you're going to ask before you ask it anyway? It transcends time. Secondly, how could asking make any difference? How could asking make any difference? Surely if it's good for you, he's going to give it to you. What loving father would withhold from his child what the child needs if the child didn't ask? Again, if you love your child and you know that this child needs a certain thing and he needs it for his survival and he needs it for his self-fulfillment, would you withhold that thing? You'd give it before the child even thought of asking because that's what the child needs. And conversely, if what the child asks you for is bad for him, you won't give it. If your child approaches you and asks you for something dangerous, no matter how intensely your child asks you for that thing, no matter how much he pleads and cries, you're not going to give it because it's harmful so how can your asking make any difference if you need it and it's good for you surely he would give it to you without asking and if it's bad for you he's not going to give it even if you ask is this clear when the mother's walking down the street with a little child and the child picks up what a jagged piece of broken green glass from a broken bottle children love that because you can look at the whole world through it it looks marvelous the mother's going to take it away because it's dangerous the child's going to cry because the child wants this But the mother's going to take it away. The cries will will make no difference to her. Why? Because it's dangerous. So if you get up in front of Hashem and you say you want whatever it is that you want, and it's not good for you, he's not going to give it to you. And if it is good for you, then why why do you have to ask him? (coughs) If you want to appreciate this question just a bit more deeply, from a slightly more mystical perspective, it's worth concentrating because it's a depth that's worth understanding. Stay with me sensitively. If you ask him for something, and he gives it to you because you ask him, you've changed his mind, haven't you? Again. Again. If he was going to give it to you anyway, you're about to get it anyway. Your asking is only a tokenism. But well, that's ridiculous. That means that you're pouring out your heart in this, in this, in this you know, heartfelt and intense request, and, and all the time it's a mere formality, actually doing nothing, you're going to get it Anyway. That's ridiculous. So if you tell me no, you weren't going to get it, but you changed his mind. Now that you've asked for it, you're going to get it. You mean I changed his mind? Do you know what this means? That means he's looking down at you and he's saying, you know, this is not good for you, and therefore I'm not going to give it to you. Now I say, well, just one second. I've got a presentation to make. Three steps back, three steps forward. Five minutes later, he looks down and he says, well, Tats you know, now that you put it that way. <laughs> You know, that's not the way I saw it before, but that's a very good presentation. Here you are. Now, is that what's happening? From a mystical perspective, you can't change him by definition. You have a problem. So why are you asking if the only possible outcome of your request could be that you, you granted what you asked? So, so, so what does it mean? He wasn't going to give it to you before, for whatever reason. Now that you've asked, you've changed the situation. You are saying no less than that you changed him. Which by definition, is, by definition is impossible. So what's the alternative? You didn't change him, he was going to give it anyway. So then, so then what did the asking do? Do you have the problem? I mean, if anybody... I presume there are people in this room who pray occasionally. If not, why not? <laughs> but you should know what you do. The Rambam holds that the Torah Mitzvah of prayer is only what's called Le'et Mitzvah, which means at a time of distress. That's what he holds, that the Torah mitzvah of prayer is when you're in trouble. There are other opinions, but there are other opinions. And, and we hold basically that it's a mitzvah to pray in general. For women, it's a mitzvah to pray at least once a day. It doesn't necessarily have to have a fixed time. But even if you accept only that it's a prayer in time of distress, that that's the commandment, that's the mitzvah, never, never mind for now the rabbinic element of the, of the, of the process. But again, you're in distress. What does it mean? You weren't going to be saved anyway, so then what is your pouring out of... And if you weren't going to be saved, how did you change his mind? Let's go further. Why is prayer expressed as requests in the first place? Apart from this difficulty. If it's the highest level of your connection with Hashem, then it should be not asking for what you need, it should be giving yourself. You know that, you know that the prayers are learned from the sacrifices. You know that we say, Unushalma parim svatenu. Our, our, our lips will pay what sacrifices used to. In other words, since we don't have the sacrificial process anymore, we don't have a temple, <coughs> so nowadays all we have is our words. What we're saying is that the words of prayer are your act of sacrifice. And korban in Hebrew, sacrifice, means that you come close, and the real depth of the sacrifice is that you give yourself. When an animal is offered, that's a difficult concept, and now's not the time to go into it, when you bring a living creature, it's a substitute and sublimation of your own soul being sacrificed. That's what it means. <coughs> so you're serving in the deepest sense. You know that in English, which usually translates Torah wrongly, this is one example where it translates correctly. In English we call it the prayer service. That's accurate. It's a service. You serve Hashem. And that's what's called avodah the the work of the heart. What kind of chutzpah is it? To call it a service and a sacrifice, and when you get into that position of sacrifice, you ask him for what you want. Again, you've gone, you have the problem? You go into the fourth world, you face him directly, you come in front of him with the expression of what you're going to do now as a sacrifice, and you mean no less than sacrifice yourself. And when you perform this act of sacrifice, what is it? You say, I want this, and this, and this, and this. It's a shopping list. Have you been through Shimon Ezra? You know what the Shimon consists of? The first three, three brokers are introductory, right? The deeper sources say it's a winding up, it's a, it's a tuning in, it's an, and the last three are a certain respectful stepping down or stepping back. But the 13 middle blessings are all requests. You want health, wealth, wisdom. Sure, there are a whole lot there that are communally, we express them all in the plural, and a number of them are for elements of redemption and Yerushalayim and the redemption of the Jewish people and, and, and of course there's all that. But there's plenty, even those surely are things that we would benefit from. Who doesn't want an end to the the bizarre suffering that's going on in the world? What kind of person are you if you don't long for an end to that? But apart from that, there's personal things that you want to be healthy, you want wealth, you want wisdom. The first brooch is for diaries to understand. So now again, you hear the problem? You come in front of Hashem, in total servitude, you call it a service, you derive it from the sacrifices, the appropriate wording should be, Hashem, here I am, take me! This is a service, it's a sacrifice. I've gotten up to this level, I've clarified my thinking, I, I'm, I'm, I live only for you, take me. What do you do when you get up there? You say, now that I'm here, I want this, I want this, I want this. And you run off a whole list of 13 things that you're asking for. you got the chutzpah to call that it service? It's called avoid the the work of the heart. Work of the heart to express what you want? You hear the paradox? Anybody? <laughs> And it goes on and on. There's many other paradoxes. One of them is the fact that the word tefillah in Hebrew, you know that the words always express exactly what they mean. Hebrew is a scientific language. The word always means exactly what it says, unlike other languages. (coughs) The word tefillah in Hebrew (coughs) is one of those remarkable words (coughs) which contains two direct opposites. You know, there's a class of words in Hebrew, many words, that contain two opposites at the same time. Are you familiar with that? The word shame, for example. Shame means a name which always expresses essence, like it's part of the word neshama. And shame, shmama, means desolation, where there's no essence. There are many examples in Hebrew. The same word shoresh in Hebrew, meaning a root, can both be used in a Hebrew word that means to plant a root or to uproot. There are many words like that in Hebrew. The word phila is one of those remarkable words that has two opposite meanings at the same time. The root palo in Hebrew, palal, that root means, it means an expression of something that is so far beyond anything that could possibly be expected or even conceived, that it would have to be miraculous. In other words, the word means an asking for something that is so impossible and so miraculous and so far beyond the possibilities, that it would have to be completely out of the realm of anything natural and Yes, like for example it says, Re'o'i Panecha pilalti. When Yaakov, Jacob, saw Yosef, saw Joseph, again after many years of separation, 22 years of thinking that the boy had been killed, and he was reunited with him after many years, the expression he, that, that burst forth from him was, Re'o Panecha pilalti. I never dreamed of seeing your face again. Seeing your face again was something that was completely inconceivably miraculous to me. In other words, the word implies that which goes beyond any natural possibility. But the word palo, palal in Hebrew also is the root of the word plili which in Hebrew means that which pertains to the system of judicial exactitude meaning the thing that fits the law exactly. The, the same root in Hebrew means that which breaks all rules and all possibility of laws and structure and that which perfectly is a function of the structure. The same word means both those things. Why? Because when you pray for something when you ask for something and the result is given Right, the mystical sources say that two things happen. One, a miracle occurs. A miracle occurs. You changed his mind. Do you want to put it that way? We'll have to see a more accurate definition of that. You, you get something that wasn't going to be. And on the other hand, they say, that all you do is reveal that that was meant to be anyway. That duality, that paradox occurs. Perhaps we need an example to make it a bit more clear. example I'm thinking of is, and I'm sure your minds are racing ahead of me, and you've already identified the example. And the reason I know you've done that, and I can see it on your faces, is because we've studied together, we've shared together the principle that in Torah there are certain techniques that we always use to discover the depth of a subject. And one of them is we always go back to the root of that subject in Torah. You remember we've stud- we studied that before? We always go back to the first time a thing appears in Chumash, right? And specifically we go back to the first time it appears, specifically we look for where it appears in the first six days of creation. Because since the whole world was created in six days, it follows that everything was created then. Are we are we together? I see we need an example. The Gemara says, Harai et, tes et tet If somebody sees a tet, you know the ninth letter of the Aleph Mace? In a dream, yet tov you should expect something good will happen. Why? Because the Hebrew word tov begins with that? Very good. <laughs> <laughs> So far, so good. (laughs) Since the word good begins with a tet, so if you dream that letter, you should expect something good will happen. Comes along the Gon of Vilna and asks the obvious question. There are a lot of very bad words in Hebrew that begin with a tet also. Some of the worst words in Hebrew begin with that letter. So why should you choose? Do you understand the question? Why, when you see that letter, does it mean something good? You could have chosen... Answers the Gon most beautiful and, and, and central principle. The first time that a tet appears in the Torah is ki-tov. The first time that that letter swims into focus in its moment of creation is in the context, the first letter of the word of goodness that will always be its root meaning. Do you understand? Later meanings will always be emanations or resonances that are secondary. Of course, there's much more you can learn from this. One beautiful thing you can learn is if it always means good at root, then even those words that mean badness, must be based on a root, understand? That there must be somehow emanations of a goodness inside. That's a more remarkable thought, but that means that more analysis another time. The point is that the first time a thing appears is always its root. You know, just like when a child is formed, when the genes fuse and they form what the child will be, the rest will only be a revelation of what was laid down at the point of origin. And therefore we always go back to the first time in Torah that the thing is mentioned, because that is, so where is the first time in Torah that we meet the concept of prayer? And the closer we'll find it to the beginning, the more central and seminal an idea it must be. So the major says that the first time we find prayer, and specifically in the first six days of creation, was no less than the first action than the human being ever did. Right? Adam, or Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, when they were still conjoined, right? You know, they were, they were formed as a male-female complex, right? You know that. They were not two separate human beings. The two of them were fused at their backs. Right? There was no back. There were two fronts. They were, when they opened their eyes, that's for now just, let's call it Adam, adam Mauritian. When he opened his eyes, we think that he saw a garden. He was created in a garden, but the Medrash says he wasn't created in a garden. All he saw was dust. Why? Because all the plants of that garden had not broken the surface of their. But Terem Yitzmach means they had not yet flourished. Why? The seeds were poised, they had begun to grow, but they had not broken the surface of the earth. Why? There was no man to work the land. Since there was nobody to work the land, nothing had grown. Now the problem that the commentaries deal with is, there was no work that had to be done in the garden. It was a miraculous existence. He didn't have to work for a living. That was the curse that came later. Therefore the work that's being discussed here must be another kind of work. And in fact, since that garden was a garden of internal intrinsic spirituality the only kind of work that had to be done there was internal, intrinsic spiritual work. And that's what's called Avodah Sheva the work of the heart, which is prayer. Which means that when he opened his eyes and he perceived only a dust covering the earth, and with his superconscious knowledge and insight, he knew that this should not be. And so he realized that the reason it was like this is because there was no rain. The reason there was no rain was because no one had worked, dove and prayed for it. He immediately opened his mouth and dove and prayed for rain. The rain fell and then it became a garden. Now, that was the first act that the human being did, which means it is a very, very central and critical part of our existence. The Gemara says you cannot have what you want without prayer. No matter how essential it is for you, no matter how good it is for you, if you don't ask for it, you will not get it. It's not a luxury. It's not something that when you've got time, you know, you concentrate. Not at all. You cannot have what you want without. You can't have success in Torah learning. You can't earn a living. The Gemara says you can try your utmost. If you don't do this, you won't have that. But what do you see from this thing? Listen to the paradox. When he prayed, what happened? It rained. In other words, had he not asked, it wouldn't have rained. But when he did ask, what happened? It rained, and the, gr- the garden that was supposed to be there was already poised to be. You, know, you hear the paradox? Had he not asked, he would have had nothing. When he did ask, he revealed that it was meant to be anyway. And therefore, the mystics say that prayer is both natural and miraculous. It's miraculous because without your asking, it wouldn't have happened. You achieved the result. And it's natural because once you've done it, you see that that's what He intended anyway, and it's perfectly natural. That's why in Torah you'll find dual sources. You'll see, you'll see sources that refer to prayer as a miracle, and you'll see sources that refer to prayer as a natural mechanism in the creation. <coughs> Let's go further. There's another paradox. Are we just asking questions? We haven't begun to answer them yet. There's another paradox. It says in the sources, Jewish sources that deal with prayer, that before you can ask for anything, you have to be prepared to sacrifice it. You know that paradox? You've got a chutzpah to ask for something, if you're so attached to it, that you're not prepared to give it up. That's for a Jew. That's for a Jew. For non-Jews it's not the same. There the Gemara says that King Solomon, when he built the temple, one of the prayers that he offered was he asked Hashem that any non-Jew who prays to you through this house should be answered unconditionally he made a special pillar that non-Jews who will exert themselves in prayer and will pray through this house specifically you should answer them unconditionally we do not have a tradition about whether he was answered or not we don't know but that was his prayer we do know certain non-Jewish powers for example it says that the B'nai the Arabs have a certain special power of prayer it's not simple Yishmael means that Hashem hears them. It's not so simple. But for a Jew, we don't get answered unconditionally. Your tefillah, your prayer should be, Hashem, this is how you're supposed to phrase your prayer. Listen to this paradox. Hashem, I'm about to ask you for something that I want very badly. But if it's not right and it's not good, scrap this prayer. I remember hearing of a case of a, a woman who had a son who was desperately ill, the boy had a brain tumor. And at the time she went to see, he was a young child, she went to see one of the great Hasidic leaders of that generation. The names are not important now. And she sat, she sat facing this man and she said to him, she told him about her son's illness, and she said, I've come to beg you to dove and to pray for the boy. And he did a remarkable thing. He said to her, before we do that, could you give him up if you had to? If you knew that he had to die now, if you knew that Hashem wanted him now, and that's directly what Hashem wanted, and that's what had to be, could you accept that? So the woman sat there and agonized over it for a long time, and finally she said, if I knew that that's what Hashem really wanted right now, yes, I think I could. He said, fine, now we can do (coughs) it. And the boy survived. The boy recovered. What was he teaching? He was teaching her that if you want it, because you're so attached to it that you can't give it up, then, then it really is selfish. Then, so what? You, then, then where is even the opening to be talked? We're talking about service. But if you can sacrifice it, then you can ask for it. <coughs> perhaps, perhaps we can use a give you a simple example. I heard not so long ago. <coughs> I heard from a certain <coughs> a certain woman in Jerusalem. Shall I have a woman. In a home one day, and a little daughter was playing with a doll. <coughs> Domestic scene. <coughs> Mother was doing something in the house, little girl's playing with the doll. <coughs> Suddenly the doll broke. <coughs> the head came off. And the little girl was very distressed. So without thinking, the mother said to her, Why don't you dive into Hashem to fix your doll? You know, in a superficial first moment she thought, Teach the child principles of Judaism. When you have a trouble, you turn to Hashem. So she said to the little girl, pray and then she thought, What have I done? What have I done? This little child's gonna go off with all her little youthful intensity. And Emona, she's going to ask Hashem to fix a doll, and we know what's going to happen. Not going to be miraculously fixed. And I've destroyed this child's Emunna. Mm-hmm. I've destroyed this child's faith and her belief in prayer, and who knows what I've done. And that's what happened. The little child went off into a corner. This little girl was shuffling backwards and forwards, asking Hashem to fix her doll, and the mother was absolutely distraught. And of course, the doll remained broken. So at the end of this long, heartfelt prayer, the mother, with great trepidation, she said to her daughter, Did you ask Hashem to fix your doll? Little girl said yes. Mother said, And what happened? Little girl said, He said no. (laughs) (laughs) Not simple. Not simple. (coughs) If you can hear that answer, as well as the other answer, then you can ask for it. (coughs) Alright, there are many more questions, but let's use these as the framework for attempting an understanding of this subject it's a most amazing subject it opens depths that are inaccessible in any other way so let's try and do the work together there's a lot of deep work here and it's not easy not at all easy <coughs> let's, let's, let's try <coughs> do we have energy to try and work this out together yes, despite the difficulty it's going to be a long night <laughs> Let's do it like this. Let's take one of the questions. It's much easier to focus on one of the questions. Let's take one of our questions and focus on it carefully. Try and propose and understand an answer to this question. And hopefully we'll see how it answers all the difficulties. Alright? Yes? Let's choose one of the classic questions that we've tried to enunciate and see if we can... <coughs> Let's take the most obvious and the most childlike, the youngest perhaps, the most innocent of the questions... How can you hope to change his mind? How can you present your request in such a way that you were not going to get it before, but because of your request you will get it? Does that not transgress the principle of changing him? Or put more simply, how can you convince him or change him in any way? So stay with me carefully, because this next couple of seconds is the principle that answers all the difficulties. It's just a question of understanding it correctly. And it's one of the most marvellous and important principles in life. And the answer is this. When you pray correctly, when you daven correctly, you do not change Him. You change you. What does that mean? You can't change Him. It's ridiculous. But you can change you. The work is the work in the heart of changing who you are. How does it explain that you get what you want, what you ask for, because you change yourself? The mechanism is as follows. Again, this is the center of the subject. We'll have to feel it out and explore it, but this is the center of the subject. When you change yourself, you change yourself from being the kind of person who could not use that thing, and for whom it would have been negative and harmful, and that's why you weren't given it. You change yourself into becoming the person who could use that thing, for whom it will be beneficial, and that's why you get given it. You do not get given it because you changed his mind. You get given it because you changed you. Let me try and make this clear. You want money, no? You want money, let's You want money. But the money is bad for you. Why? Because if you have a lot of it, you may become self-reliant, you may forget about him, you may think it's your own doing, it may damage your relationship with him. So although you want it very powerfully, it's not good for you. You're a child who wants to look through a broken piece of green glass, because you think it'll be a lot of fun, but it's dangerous. It's very dangerous for you. It's dangerous in the core of your being, where you live spiritually. So he's not going to give it to you now you work on yourself, right? you say to Hashem like this you work on yourself intensely and you say you know what Hashem until now I've wanted this money and the truth is when I really look at it honestly I wanted it selfishly but I've now come to realize that that was immature and you know what I want it for now? I want it for the right reasons and it's not going to block me from my approach to you in fact what I really want it for is to do what you want me to do with it you know what he's going to say? what's the problem? here you are Why? The reason I wasn't giving it to you before was because it was harmful for you. No matter how much you wanted it, I wasn't going to give you something that's harmful. You were the kind of person who couldn't use it then. But now that you've changed yourself into the kind of person who could use it, you get it. Is this clear? (laughs) Maybe we need to bring it down further. This little child wants power tools. This child with a long and, and, and well corroborated history of destroying the house right? <laughs> with no tools wants <coughs> an electric drill an electric hammer drill <coughs> what's the other going to say? No the kid's going to cry and perform because he'd love a drill Dad's going to say no because you know what he's going to do with the drill? He's going to drill holes in the cat that's what he's going to do <coughs> So what does Abba give? Plastic tools. Plastic tools. When the child grows up to the extent and he gains the maturity to be able to use the tools correctly, his father will give him the right tools. Why? Because he changed his father's mind. He didn't change his father's mind. He changed himself. When he gains the maturity to use the tool correctly, he gets given the tool. Why not? What father would withhold from the child the maximum tool that the child can? But you know what maturity means? It means the control when not to use the thing. You know when you let a child cross the road? When they're old enough to know when not to cross the road. Mm-hmm. Power is measured by the control that you can wield over it. So when you get the maturity to control the power that you get given, you get given the power. You didn't change him. There's a no problem of convincing him or changing him. He's waiting for you to change you. Prayer is no less than the work you do on the center of your being that changes you. That's why it's so important. That's why we do it all the time. not mumbling a few words. If you mumble a few words, it has no effect at all. If you mumble a few words, meaning that I'm trying to convince you, it's worse than no words at all. Because then you need to be taught a lesson. That's a chutzpah and it That's not prayer. The work of Tzvi'el is to stand up there, avoid It means you work on yourself to become somebody that you weren't before. That's a sacrifice. You sacrifice the person you were before. Can you see how it all fits? That's called work. That's the real work. External work is nothing compared to changing who you are. (coughs) Let's go through this in stages. Can we do that? Yes. Do we have the principle? Let's work through it. Let's see how it works. There's a lot to talk about. I don't. uh (coughs) I want to keep you too late, but I think I'm going to. (laughs) Let's understand. Let's understand. First of all, what do we mean when we say, that's the principle, you make a change in yourself. And that's why it's hard, and that's why it's central, that's why it's at the beginning of the Torah, because the creation of the human being was to do the work upon himself, or upon themselves that was needed. It's not peripheral, it's not just something that oils the mechanism, it is the mechanism. All of life is nothing other than an attempt to change yourself, and and refine, and develop, and, and rectify your characteristics. And prayer does it directly. Other mitzvahs don't do it directly. When you do other mitzvahs, you train yourself to be kindly, you train yourself to understand freedom, you understand whatever the mitzvahs are. They work on you indirectly. But tefillah works on you directly. It's a meditation that changes you in the core directly. When you do a mitzvah of kindliness, right, when you do chesed, you give somebody something that they need, it changes you because it's a training exercise in becoming kindly. Therefore the body does an action and it drives in and changes the the character, the personality. But when you dive in, you don't use the body. You directly change who you are. You go into the center, you go back to the source of creation. And that's what you do. You become again that man, or that man and woman, as they were being formed, with the incredible and cosmic potential to change who they were into the version of their own creation in perfection. And you get the chance to do that. And that's why it's worth nine hours a day. The Gemara says it would be worth doing all day if you could. Ibi Yochanan says, Halavai, that a person would pray forever. Incidentally, you, you hear the principle? Incidentally, this is the reason there's so many beautiful applications of this. There's I'll share with you one. There's a principle in Torah that Hashem never interrupts a person's prayer. You know that? You know that? Example, example. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses is dubbing. You remember he's standing by the, by the sea? There's a desperate need for the Jewish people to be saved. Right? The sea is obstructing them. The Egyptians are pursuing them. There's a desert. That, right? So Moshe Rabbeinu starts praying, what else are you going to do? That's what you're supposed to do in these situations, right? He turns to Hashem and he starts praying to save the Jewish people. What's Hashem's answer? Moshe, this is not the time for long prayers. Cut your prayers short, because I wish to answer you. Cut your prayers short, stop doubling, so that I can save the Jewish people. What kind of... Again, he's praying for Hashem. Why doesn't Hashem simply answer his prayer while he's praying? Again, you hear what's going on? Hashem says, please stop asking me. Stop praying. As soon as you stop, I'll I'll do what you ask. What's the problem? Why does he have to stop? Simply do it. He sees the sea split. He'll stop asking. But Hashem will not interrupt at tzaddik's prayer. Why not? Why not? Not the answer is because that's what he wants. The reason that he puts you in this difficulty so that you will pray, so that you'll daven, because that's when you'll work on yourself directly. You know what you think? You think that you're in this situation, and in order to get out of it, you must pray. That's not right. You think what he wants is to deliver you, and you have to pray in order to get the deliverance. That's not what he wants. What he wants is that you pray, that's why he put you there. The reason, the the, the, the Medrash says it, the Medrash says that Hashem so loves the prayer of the Jewish people, that he put them at the sea, and put them in an impossible situation, so that they would cry out to him, in an appeal, in a a, a personal and immediate connection to him. The Medrash even goes so far as to say, it was like a king, who was once, uh, he gives an, an analogy of old chivalry, a king was riding down a road and he saw a girl in distress. She was being attacked by a group of highwaymen. So he heroically rode over and he scattered all the attackers and he saved her. Right? And that's how they, the relationship began. Sometime later, when the relationship was not as sharp and as emotional and intense as it had been at the beginning, he hired a band of thugs to attack her so that she would cry out to him and he... Re- that's what it says. Hashem so loves the, the, the appeal of the Jewish people to Him, which is an appeal, a direct and personal, intimate connection, that He put us at the sea with the Egyptians behind us. And the, Why? The object of the exercise was not the salvation of the Jewish people in an incredible sense. The object of the exercise was that they should relate to Him correctly. Do you know why the forefathers and four, the, the, grand, the great fathers and mothers of the Jewish people were infertile? They never had children for years and decades. You know what it says in Madrash? HaShem Hashem craves the prayers of the righteous. You know what the word mitave means in Hebrew? Tava means lust. He lusts for, he craves the prayers of the righteous. That's what God does. You know why? Because that's where the tzaddik becomes a tzaddik. It's in working on himself day after day and year after year in an intensity of elevating himself or herself that the tzaddik through that meditation becomes what they become. Why is he making them wait day after day after day, year after year after year for what they need? After all, he's going to give them a child. It's going to be the foundation of the Jewish people. So why does he make them wait for years? Because they're not ready. They haven't changed themselves enough yet into being who they must be. And therefore, he squeezes them more, and he squeezes them more, and he squeezes them more, until they squeeze out of themselves that intensity of meditation that elevates themselves to where they have to be. Then they get the result. Why? Because they finally convinced him after 20 years. No, because it took 20 years to grow, to be the greatness of one who could become the father or mother of the Jewish people. That's why he doesn't interrupt the prayer of a tzaddik because what he wants is the prayer. How could he interrupt it? That's your growth. That's what he craves. Is your growth. He wants you to be who you can be. So he squeezes you into a difficulty so you cry out and work on yourself. It's not an incidental exercise. That's where you become who you become. Is this picture becoming clear? That's why it says Od while they're speaking I'm listening. Right? Terem Before they even ask I have answered. Some have asked the question, the, that's what the verse says, while they're speaking, I'm listening. Right? Before they ask me, I answer. Gemara says it means that in the days when they used to pray for rain, their prayer was so powerful that when they just took their shoes off, they used to do without their shoes on in those days, they simply took off their shoes, the great Sadiqim, and it began to rain. They didn't even have to ask. So you see how beautiful the verse is? While they are asking, Od while they speak, ani eshma. I'm listening. I don't answer while they speak, I listen. But, te, but, but when it says that they before they ask I answer Hashem can answer before you start speaking if you deserve it before you even begin asking He can answer, that's fine but He will not interrupt your prayer let's go a little further yes can we go further what does it mean to change yourself what does that mean exactly And how is asking for things changing yourself? We haven't answered that yet. How is it that you change yourself? So it should be a meditation. You should get up there and say, Hashem, I wish to change myself. Instead of being selfish and childish, I now work on myself to become more mature. That's what you should be saying. Why do you say, I want this and I want this and I want this? Do you you see that we have not yet answered that part of our question? Anyone with me? We have answered the basic question of how you could change Him. How you could achieve a result that could not have been any other way. Right? And how when you achieve it, it was meant to be anyway, because, because you, you reached your perfection, that's what was intended. But we've not yet answered, why if it's a sacrifice of the self, and it's a working on the self, why is it phrased as requests? Right? That still remains difficult. So let's try, let's try to work on that. One step at a time. First of all, when you change yourself, the first level of a change is a change in a relationship. It is an intrinsic change on the self, but it works through a change in the relationship. Let me explain that. When you ask someone for something, before we we understand the depth of an intrinsic change in the root of the personality, when you ask someone for something, what happens is you change your relationship with that person. When you turn to Hashem and you are asking for something, you're training yourself to acknowledge that what you want comes from Him and not from your bank manager. If until now you ask your bank manager it means that you manifest the belief that He's the one who can do it. When you turn less to Him and more to Hashem, you're training yourself that that's where it comes from. Let me put it more more bluntly. You don't walk into a music shop and ask to buy socks. You know why? They don't sell socks there. (laughs) If you walk into an establishment and ask for socks, unless there's something seriously missing, You are clearly stating that you believe that that's where they sell socks. Is this clear? Mm -hmm. And therefore, when you turn to Hashem and ask Him for what you need, you are manifesting and reinforcing and training yourself, right, in the understanding that that's where it comes from, and that's why you do it as an exercise in changing the relationship. You. And that's what it means to change yourself. That's what he's waiting for. Example Here's a father who's bought a bicycle for his child. He's got a little child and he's bought him a bicycle. And the father's longing and looking forward to the moment where he'll present this child because he knows the joy that this child will experience when he gives him this bicycle. Right now the bicycle's locked up in the Mahsan in the the basement (coughs) and he's not giving it. you know why he's not giving it? Because the child is spoilt, and a little bit forward and a little bit obnoxious but you don't get them here. But there are, <coughs> there are places where you meet children like that. And therefore, the father's not giving it. you know why? Because it will not be good for the child. It will be negative. That's a wise father. This child takes everything for granted. And this child, everything that he gets, this child takes for granted and thinks that he deserves it. And he takes his father for granted. And he's not sensitive. So the father knows that if he'll give this child a wonderful gift like this, the child will take it further for granted and it will spoil him and make him worse. But the father's longing to give it to him. But he can't. One day the child walks in and he says, You know Abba, I've been thinking. I suddenly realize that everything I have comes from you. I suddenly realize that I've been a little immature. And I, by this stage of the conversation you can resuscitate the father. <laughs> and a kick it whatever he wants. But, just, but let's hear it through, yeah? He says, Abba, I suddenly realized that I'm nothing without you. I suddenly realized that I wouldn't be any place without you. I get every And anything you give me makes me appreciate you more. Right? And the father can see that the child sincere. You know what the father does? With tears in his eyes, he goes and he gets a bicycle and he gives it to the child, doesn't he? That's what he was waiting for. Did the child convince the father? No. What he did was he worked on himself to a level that was required. And when he got to that level of understanding the relationship correctly, so then the relationship yielded what... It's obvious, isn't it? You can't fake this. This is an Abba who knows what you mean. Uh, If you're going to get up there and make a slick presentation, and not only are you going to say, I want this thing, but you say, I want it for you. And you're lying for your teeth. (laughs) Then even if it was waiting in the wings, it's going to get rapidly sold to some kid down the block who's going to deserve it? That's a big problem. You're going to need a lesson. Not just an absence of the gift. Something else going to have to be taken away. This is We're talking about work on the intrinsic center of the being. We're not talking about words. It's the most deep and difficult meditation. Let's take the next step. There's a much deeper form of change that's required. And this will explain why this is difficult but Let's try. This will explain why we phrase our prayers as requests. Even though we call it service, and we say that it's a sacrifice of the self, yet we phrase it as requests. This needs deep thought. Let's try and explain it. Much more than the relationship. And the idea is this. I don't think we have time now to go into it as fully as we need to, but let's try and at least point the direction. This is the most difficult part to understand, and it's by far the most important. There's only one way you can change yourself in in reality and in depth. There's only one part of your consciousness there's only one part of you that you can change that makes any difference. And that is what you want. The way you're built internally the way a human being is built internally is that at the top of the being we're talking now not in the body we're talking in the mystical structure at the top of the being, in fact, mystically, it's the place where a man wears his tefillin. Where the commentaries say that you wear your tefillin there because the baby's skull is open there. When a baby's born, there's no bone. The fontanelle, which is exactly where you're supposed to wear your tefillin, <coughs> is a place where the bone is open. <coughs> so the pulsating, you can feel the brain of a child pulsating. There's no connection. There's a, there's a complete... Right? Women, of course, don't wear tefillin because they remain connected. But what a man is doing when he puts his tefillin on, there's a, re, there's a reconnection there. That highest place in the mystical structure is called Ratzon. Ratzon means desire. The word Ratzon is based on rats, which means it's all outflow of movement begins there. And in fact, the word Ratzon adds up to the same numerical equivalent as the Hebrew word Makor, which means a source. Ratzon and Makor, yes, this place called Ratzon, your will or your volition or your desire is in fact the source of everything else that you are. Can you see this? Before you can formulate a thought and put it into action and go and do whatever it is, you must first will that thing. Is this clear? If I make an action in the world, right, I move something from here to there. If you trace it, what's happening? The object is moving. Why is the object moving? Because my muscles are moving. Why are the muscles moving? Because the nerves are firing. Why are the nerves firing? Because some centers in the brain are discharging. Why are those things discharging, generating that electricity, that energy? Because there's a cell somewhere that fired. Why did that cell fire? You see, until you get to that point, you're just describing mechanics. From that point on down, when the nerves are working, and the muscles are working, and the physics, and the mechanisms, a machine can do that. It can do it better than you. An animal can do that, and, most, and many animals can do it better than you as well. The only point, this is so important, there's nothing more important than this, the only point that makes you human, let alone Jewish, and let alone uniquely the, the individual that you are, but the difference between you and the machine, or you and an animal, is only the initial flesh of something to nothing that can ever be shown on any electrodes or oscilloscopes or machines. From then on in, it's purely mechanical. By the way, the reason that this generation thinks that we are animals, the teaching of this generation that teaches that we are an accidental species of animal is exactly because they put electrodes into you, and they put electrodes into an animal, and when an animal moves something in the world, the picture looks exactly the same on the machines as when you move something. So they conclude that since what they can measure looks the same, you are the same as an animal. Why? Because the place where they cannot put an electrode is into the source that's called Rotson. That source is a place that you cannot measure. It does not live in the physical world. It's the interface between the spiritual and the physical world. In the Hebrew it's called Ein. It's the transition from a nothing to a something. They can only measure from the something. They can only measure from the yesh on down. They can only measure from something into other somethings. They can't measure the gap between nothing and something. Is this clear? You can never show that, but you can know it. Because when you formulate a desire and it comes into your mind and you're inspired by it, you can feel what happened. Of course, by the time you feel it and it's there, it's already a something. We're talking about the moment of transition when it was nothing and flashed in. That's called Ratzon. You know why Ratzon is called the source, the makor in Hebrew? Because the definition of a source is that which has no other source. If it were, then that would be called the source. Can you see this? Your will or your desire is the source of who you are. There's no reason for it. The reason is that it's you. Why do you want what you want? Because that is you. You don't want it for some other reason. Is this clear? If you want to know who you really are, know what you should do? Go into a room by yourself. Close the door and ask yourself, what do I really want? Have a moment of silence, absolute concentration. Ask yourself, what do I really want? You know what will happen? Something will pop into your mind. It's usually humiliating at best. (laughs) When that thing clarifies itself in your mind and you've dealt with it, ask yourself now one second, why do I want that thing? Usually you'll find, ah, I want that thing, because if I had that, I could be this. Fine, why do you want this? Why do you want to be this? Because if I were that, or if I had that, I could be, or do, something else. Can you see this? Sooner or later, and it's usually sooner, you'll get to something that you want for no other reason than the <coughs> fact that you want it. That's you. That is you. The single central desire that fuels all other desires, that is you. That is you. It's a dangerous exercise because most people, if they really delve deeply, discover that what they really want to do is curl up in the sun and go to sleep like a dog. And there's a lot worse, I can assure you. That's already refined. (laughs) But that central thing that has no reason, that's you. Can you feel this? It must be so. It must be so. You don't want this because if you had this, this is you. This is the source of your consciousness. You want this because that is an expression of you. Everything else you want or do is an expression of how to go about getting that thing. And by the way, you can't judge it from external activity. Very many people who want to curl up in the sun and go to sleep are very, very active and very busy so that they can finish the work earlier so they can sleep more in the sun. (laughs) You can't tell from the external activity. And the, is this clear? And therefore, if you wish to change yourself, this is the secret. If you wish to change yourself, there's only one thing that will work. You have to change what you want. If you change how you go about getting what you want, that's no good. You're fooling yourself. That's window dressing. Instead of doing it like this, you'll do it like that. Instead of doing it in a coarse and crude fashion, you'll do it in a more refined fashion. Fine, it's good. But you're not changing what you want, you're fooling yourself. Is this clear? The only way you can change yourself is by changing what you want and that's why our prayers are phrased as our requests. We are trying to change what it is that we want. That's what we're doing. What kind of change? Stay with me carefully. You can't change what you want. How can you change what you want? That's you. If that's the source that generates all else how can you change that? You can't pull yourself up by your own hair. Do you see the problem? If the definition of the source of all your consciousness is this thing, how can you change it? You can't. If you climb up in yourself, and you get to the top, you can't climb up beyond the source. Is this clear? There's only one way you can do this. You cannot change what you want, but he can. The only possible mechanism is, you have to give it up. And then he gives you a new one. That's what we call negation of the ego. Yeah, the work is like this, you have to get up there and say, Hashem, you know what? In this meditation that I've come face to face with my own essence and my own being, this is who I am. It's unpleasant, it's humiliating, it's childish, it's immature, but this is who I am. You know what, Hashem? Take it. Take it. Give me a higher one. And you're absolutely guaranteed, watertight Torah guaranteed. You do that if you do that honestly, if you give away who you are, you get given a higher one. In fact it has to be a gift. Because you could never grow beyond what you are, if it was left to you. And therefore he makes a promise, that if you give away, if you prepare to give up. You know, if you want an analogy for this, you know what concentration is? Let's bring it down into the world of thought, right? Not right up in the source, let's just take an analogy. In the world of thought, do you know what concentration is? You cannot concentrate on the solution to a problem. You don't have a solution. When you're trying to solve a problem or gain an inspiration, you can't think about the inspiration. You don't have it. That's the problem. All you can do is keep the noise and the interference out of the way long enough that it can be given. Can you feel that? Can you feel that? You know, that usually happens. You need to solve a problem. You need an inspiration how to do something, right? You strive and strive and struggle and you don't have it. What do you do? You walk up and down and backwards and forwards and it can go on for hours, sometimes for days. And you just don't have the answer. And somehow, sometime, usually when, you've not, when you're not trying, it usually happens when you're sleeping, you know that? It usually happens when you struggle on a problem and you work on it for hours and hours and hours until you can say it backwards and forwards and sideways but you have not grasped it. So in utter frustration you go to sleep. You wake up the next morning and you say, I've got it! Then you've got the chutzpah to say, I worked it out. (laughs) You didn't work it out, you went to sleep. But because you stopped struggling, because you stopped putting your own messy, confused, noisy ego into the picture, you you made the source transparent. As soon as you made it transparent, the light shone in. Is this clear? You see, in English, we say, you know we say this in English, I had an idea. I had an idea. Doesn't mean, you, know, you, know, in, 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 you know, Yiddish is a Jewish language. You know, the Jewish people coined that language because it expresses Judaism. Not accidental. You know what an idea is in Yiddish? An Einfall. It falls in. Isn't that Jewish? That's a Jewish grasp. You didn't do it. You, you, you gave up in frustration. The God of illness says it happens when you're sleeping because it's when you're sleeping that you dull, you dull and, and, and quieten the noise of your own attempts. And when you, when you, when you let them relax... It gets given as a gift. Can you feel this? It gets very hard to put into words. If you ever struggled for an inspiration or the solution to a problem, you'll know that that's the way it goes. In fact, it usually happens either when you're sleeping or at the moment when you suddenly acknowledge that it's impossible. And you just snap. And then uh, you get lit up with the thing. Are these clumsy words adequate? That's what it is. The secret is to keep yourself out of the way. Rav used to say, the world is full of light, except where we cast the shadows. <laughs> you see, the problem is, you think you're such a big deal that you're shining the light. So you keep putting yourself in the way to shine the light, and you keep making it dark. That's the problem. You get out of the way, the light will shine in. That's the problem. But it's hard work. You have to negate your ego. You have to be prepared to smash it. You have to give it up genuinely. How do you do that, by the way? How do you genuinely do that? This is a long discussion. But in a nutshell you do not doing it by going up there and saying, Hashem, I just want to be a slave of yours. Huh? All I want to do is serve you and be a slave of yours. You're lying through your teeth. You're lying through your teeth. You are lying your teeth you do not mean it. You can't say something you don't mean. That's not good. Which of us can get up honestly and say, all I want to do is be flamingly devoted to Hashem and be working on myself to become the great? Who could say such a thing? <laughs> Nobody wants that. But you know what? Most people wish... That they did want that. The desire for the desire, at least that's genuine. You hear that? That's genuine. Most people can honestly say, I don't, well, I would be quite happy going to sleep in the sun like a dog with total security, I'd be quite happy. But you know what? I wish I were motivated by more than that. To say that I am motivated is a lie. But I have a genuine wish that I, there was something higher in my ideals than that. So you get up in tefillah, and you say that, that's good enough. You ask for that, you'll be given. Nebuchadnezzar Chayim says, I'll finish with this. I want to finish with this principle and give you an example. Can I do that? Nebuchadnezzar Chayim says, you know how you give up your desires? You say, Hashem, I want health and wealth and wisdom and a whole list of things. You know why I want them? For you, not for me. Why do I want to be healthy? So I can serve you the way I should. Why do I want money? Selfishly to buy things? That's a chutzpah if you ask for that. You know what I want the money for? To use for you. To develop myself to do the things that I should be doing. That's why we phrase our prayers as requests. We're working on wanting the things that we want for the right reason, not for the wrong reason. You're working on giving up the vested interest and the ego and the childishness. And wanting it correctly, that's what you mean. When you can honestly get up there and say, So why do we phrase it as requests? Why don't you rather get up and say, I don't care? You know what the deep answer to that is? Jews who've been through Eastern philosophies, Eastern sects and philosophies, are often particularly confused about this. Unfortunately, there are many Jews these days who know much more about Eastern thought. And a lot of it's true. A lot of it is Torah. Derived from Torah. All of it. But a lot of Jews know a lot more about that than they do about Judaism. And they have a tremendous confusion in this point. There are philosophies in the world that teach that the highest evolution of the mind is to give up all desire. To blend into the oneness of the universe. A completely existential blending into reality. We teach exactly the opposite. You know what the motivation of Jew has to be? When you get up and you can say to Hashem, nothing makes any difference to me. I've given up all my desires. I'm completely without any ambition, without any volition, without any will, without any... I'm nothing at all. That's not an evolved person. That's a nobody. It's great. It's a great piece of work on myself." But not deny that do you know what an evidence Hashem is? a servant of Hashem is not somebody who doesn't want anybody who I- I- doesn't want anything such a person is not a slave, such a person is a nuisance do you know what a real servant is? a person who is very, very, very powerfully motivated but for the right thing again, if, if a man comes to you and says boss, I'm your slave <laughs> I'm your slave, I'm patty in your hands nothing makes any difference to me push me in any direction you want That's not a slave, that's a nuisance. (laughs) Do you know what a slave is? It's a person who comes to you and says, I'm fired with ambition! I'm flaming with desire to achieve! But for you, that's a slave. We don't negate our ambitions. The path of Torah is to fan to a flame all the things that are naturally your own talents and desires. Not to give them up. You should want very powerfully all the things that your neshama has a unique attachment to. You should want very most powerfully to be the greatest that you can be. You should want tremendously the thrill of fulfilling your ambitions and bringing to an absolute pitch every detail of your personality. But for whom? If you want it for the childish pleasure of enjoying it, no work been done on the ego. If you want it, and you want it powerfully, but for the right reason, and you... Then the ecstasy becomes caution. Killing the ego doesn't mean that you don't want things. Killing the ego means that you want things even more powerfully, but you don't want the ego. The vested interest is what you give up. You don't give up the desire. You give up the childish, personal vested interest in it. That's what you do. But you don't ignore your talents and your ambitions and your volitions and your will. You fan those to a flame. Is this clear? Let me give you one example and we'll, we'll finish with that. I would would just like to give you an example that sums it all up. It's a practical illustration. I know the session's been a little longer than usual, but we must develop the picture as fully as we can, at least adequately. Let me give you an example and and we'll stop there. You know where we learn the laws and the depth of prayer from? From Hannah. Hannah was a Jewish woman who was childless. So she went to Dublin for a child. and And she was rewarded with a child no less than Samuel, Shmuel, right? Shmuel means Hashem hears. The greatest prophet, one of the greatest prophets who ever lived, the anointed Saul and David. We learn from the way she prayed, what prayer means. People think we learn the technicalities. You know, she moved her lips without a sound, so we learn from that, that you have to speak the words out, although not loudly, etc. Eli thought she was drunk, because so he saw her, he saw her speaking and he couldn't hear any words. And she, told, she, said, she said she wasn't drunk. She's was a broken hearted woman. He gave her a blessing. We don't only learn the laws of prayer. How to phrase the words and how to say them and how loud. We don't only learn that. We learn the depth of what prayer means. And it's no accident that we learn it from a woman. And it's no accident that we learn it from a woman who wanted a child like she did. Now, let's try and study this. You know, without going into too much detail. You know that Hannah was a woman. She was married to a man. She had no children for a long time. She was... Pnina who lived in the same house with her children, used to try to drive Hannah into a, into a, into a, 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 a pitch of... You know, she always used to, in front of her, she, used to, she had ten children. And in front of Hannah, who had none, she always used to say to her husband, please pass a portion of food to this child of mine, and please give food to this child of mine, and to this one. She went on and on and on in front of a woman who had none. And her motivations were only to fan her desire to such a fever pitch that she'd be able to pray correctly. She suffered in the end because she hurt because of the pain that she caused, although she did it with entirely pure motivation. But when Hukana finally she used to go in and David, she went to, to the Mishkan at Shiloh. At that time, it was before the temple was built. The Mishkan was at Shiloh. Eli was the high was the priest at the time, the coin. She went to Shiloh, and she asked for a child. Right? And from there we learn. Now the way please stay with me very, very carefully because there are details here that are possible to be very, very tragically misunderstood. Misunderstood, you you could make the worst mistakes here. Understood correctly, you could reach the most sublime heights. The Gemara says how she prayed. And the Nebuchadnezzar Chaim and uh, and, uh, certain later commentaries explain exactly what was meant. The Levi explains exactly what was meant. I'm going to put it together just in a package and present it to you in summary like this. She, she prayed as follows. The Gemara says that, that, that she, It's very hard to translate this. She sort of threw things up. In, in, in loose English you'd say she prayed in a sort of slightly or seemingly improper fashion. In an aggressive fashion. And, and the Gemara repeats the words that she said. For example, she said, Hashem, you've got so many millions and millions of, of creatures in your creation you can't spare one child for me. But one of the things that she said begs any explanation. Listen carefully. She said as follows. Please, don't misunderstand. We're talking about one of the greatest people who ever lived. This woman, Hannah was right. The, the Torah, the Tanakh doesn't talk about nobodies. She was cosmic in her greatness. Hannah said to Hashem like this, Hashem, I want a child. And I have it in my power to force you to give me a child. And since I'm able to force you against your will to give me a child, I'm asking you, don't make me go through that. Give me a child without making me force you. Aggressive? Improper? She threatened God that if He didn't give her a child, she would force Him in a way that He couldn't refuse. <laughs> what does that mean? So the Bas explained like this. Now stay carefully with me. It's a, a, a most incredible thing. She said like this, Hashem, I want a child. I want to present it to you superficially, and then we'll try to understand what it means. I want a child. I can force you to give me a child. You know how? There's a law in your Torah called the law of the sota. You know what the law of the Sotai is? It's a woman who's married, who goes into seclusion with a man other than her husband, against her husband's specific wishes and instructions, and she is in seclusion, isolation with a man. After that period of isolation, and it's not known what transpired in that private seclusion, there's a test that she, can sub- be, that she can be subjected to. She has to agree to go through it. But she can be subjected to this test. What's the test? She's brought to the Besamekdash, the temple, or the Mishkan in those days. She has to drink water into which has been mixed dust from the floor of the Mishkan, and Hashem's name has been erased. You know, the name that's forbidden to be erased. In these circumstances, they write it on parchment, and it's erased into the water. The woman drinks... This cannot be done today, obviously. It can only be done in the days of the Basel Magdash. The woman drinks the water, and the Torah says that if she was guilty of an improper relationship in that privacy with that man, the punishment is that it's it's revealed in the world in such a way that she dies a grotesque and bizarre death. In fact, it says that her body falls apart, and her thigh falls off, and a a grotesque and and horrific death that stretched over time, depending on certain factors. That's what happens, right? That's the the test of the Satan. However, the Torah, and you look it up, it's all open verses in the Torah. The Torah says explicitly, that if she's guiltless, if nothing transpired between her and that man in isolation, she becomes pregnant from her husband and bears a child. Mm -hmm. That's what the Seta says. It says it openly in the Torah. So, Hannah came before Hashem and she said, Hashem, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to force you to give me a child. All I have to do is go into isolation with a man, I'll lock myself up with a man other than my husband. Nothing will happen. It's a very, very righteous woman. I'll come afterwards to the, to the Mishkan. I'll drink the water of the Satan. And because I will have been guiltless, you'll have to give me a child because you'll never make your Torah untrue. If you promised in your Torah, if you promised in your Torah that if this procedure is followed, the woman will conceive, you will never make your Torah untrue. You'll have to give me a child. And therefore, since I can do this, give me a child. Don't put me through that. Let's not go through that, Francis. Let's understand this. Now, the correct explanation of this is, as the sources made clear, <coughs> you know what she meant? She meant as follows. Stay with me carefully, because again, tragic misunderstandings are possible here. She meant as follows. Hashem, I want a child, and I need to have a child. And I know that I must bring a child. Into the We're talking about one of, the li- one, of, one of the women who lived in the history of the world of prophetic insight. And I must have a child. And I have the most intense, flaming desire for this child. You know why, Hashem? Because I want him for you. Not for me. Why? Because she was a woman of cosmic and indescribable greatness. Every flicker of a movement of her life was entirely devoted to Hashem. That's the kind of people that Tanakh talks about. And in fact, when she was given the child, you know what she did with him? She gave him to Hashem totally. You know that? The Quran says that after he was weaned, she gave him to Ali in the base of Mikdash, and he lived there and became a prophet, and I think she only saw him once a year. In fact, it says that she made a coat for him that was so miraculously constructed that it even grew with him. She meant business when she said, I want him for you, not for me. She didn't want a child to feed her own childish, motherly instincts. She wanted him for perfectly the right reason. You, know, you can't speak to Hashem that way unless you're entirely pure. If you, if you mean I want this for me, and I'm another to have the chutzpah to force you because of what I want, that's not a person of greatness. That's unspeakably love. But when you can get to a point where you can say, Hashem, every fiber of my being is entirely dedicated to you. There's nothing that's in me that, other than a motivation to serve you. And I want a child for you. And she meant it, and we see she meant it. Then you can say those things. <laughs> And therefore she got up and she... And by the way, you see here, right here you see, that the work she did on herself was not to negate her desires. She didn't get up and say, Hashem, I don't care. For years and years you haven't given me a child. I negate my desires, I don't care, I'm patting you. Oh, she did not say that. She took her natural desire to be a mother, her natural personal desire to be a mother, and she sublimated for Hashem's service, which is exactly the one you're supposed to be. You don't give up your desires. You fan them into a personal flame but for the right reason, not for your vested interests. And that's why she was able to do it. And you know what she said? She said, Hashem, I can force this thing, because in your Torah, you've made it possible. And therefore, in order to achieve this, which I know I want for pure reason, (coughs) self-knowledge, her self-knowledge was perfect. And I know it's only for you. And therefore, I'm going to go through this process. Do you want to hold that against me? It's for you. But you know what bothers me about this process, Hashem? That if we go through it, we'll have to erase your name. And that's a terrible prohibition. And it's a terrible disgrace to your name. And that's what's bothering me. And therefore, I beg of you, give it to me without putting yourself through that indignity. That's a prayer. That's service of Russian. That's working on the heart in an act of, of, of tefillin. But you have to, you can't play games. You have to be at that level. She was, and she was, she was given the, the request, without having to go through that process. She was given Shmuel, who became the one who anointed David, who was the one who gave up all his desires for Hashem. But in summary, what we have learned this evening, is the idea that Tfilah prayer is the concept of negation of ego. It's not mumbling words. It's not begging for things that you think you need, or want personally. It's not the idea of Of course, you can ask for things that you need, and of course you can ask and must ask for things you want. We're talking to, tonight about the most sublime and elevated levels. Of course, there are much more practical levels. Of course, your intention can be simply to fulfill the commandment and the mitzvah of prayer to ask for what you need. Of course, of course, that must be. But every individual, every Jew, should at least try sometime in their life to have a general intention that you want the things for the right reason. At least that, even if you can't focus on every particular. Request that it should be totally selfless. That's a lifetime of work to achieve any of that. But at least somewhere. At least understand that that's the issue. At least once in your life to ask for something with a a half-formed intention that that you'd like to achieve all that you can achieve because it's what you should be doing. That is in fact the correct work of prayer. It's the elevation into total honest confrontation of what you are in a genuine meditation and then the attempt to be able to refine that.